Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill, publisher of West of Here, the novel by Jonathan Evison. The New York Times calls West of Here riotously funny and wonderfully charming. Vanity Fair calls it a booming, big-hearted epic. The Los Angeles Times calls it an enjoyable, meaty read. And the San Francisco Chronicle calls it a big, booming ruckus of a novel. Evison is a tremendously gifted storyteller. So what that means is that the San Francisco Chronicle and Vanity Fair both refer to West of Here as booming. West of Here is booming. It's available now wherever books are sold from Algonquin. Go and get it. It's a book. You can read it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. My name is Brad Listy. This is Other People. Welcome to the program. It's a good one today. Alexander Maxick is the guest. He is the author of You Deserve Nothing. That's a novel. It's a debut novel. It's one of the hottest debut novels of the fall season. It's from Tonga Books, which is an imprint of Europa. Tonga is helmed by Alice Siebold, who wrote The Lovely Bones. That's her imprint. She runs it. The first book she ever acquired, You Deserve Nothing, by Alexander Maxick. And this was uh, particularly exciting for me because Xander is one of the original uh, you know, 20 or so writers at The Nervous Breakdown. He's been there since the very, very beginning. The way that we uh, met, uh, honestly, Craigslist. This is back at the beginning when I had this idea that I was going to form this collective literary blog type site and there were going to be writers from all over the world and I was going to get to live vicariously through expatriates essentially and Xander emailed me he was living in France at the time in Paris living kind of like the you know the dream literary expatriated life and uh 
you know, he started writing for the Nervous Breakdown, and I've seen him go from that to getting into the Iowa Writers Workshop as a Truman Capote fellow to getting his book published and published well to getting rave reviews in the New York Times. He's on book tour. He's doing stuff. So he's having a very good ride. It's very good to see, and he and I are going to talk in just a moment. Before we get there, some things to discuss. Don't forget, subscribe on iTunes. This show, available on iTunes, free of charge. You can also get it on Stitcher, the website, otherpeoplepod.com, Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. Uh, What else? Well, uh, screenwriting. I live in Los Angeles. I'm a novelist. I have a kid. I'm trying to figure out how to make money. Everybody who lives in Los Angeles who writes novels, and there are some of us here, we all have that in the back of our mind. Maybe, somehow, I could write a screenplay. And I don't think just Los Angeles people think this way. There is money to be had in television and in film. It's increasingly difficult, it seems, to get, especially if you have any kind of indie sensibility. But, you know, if you can write comic book stuff, superhero stuff, fantastical stuff, stuff with special effects, you know, that can work. If you can write comedy, the right kind of comedy that threads that needle, that can work too. Uh, I try to write comedy. I, I'm, you know, that's kind of what I've been going for. I've tried and failed repeatedly to sell anything. I'm able to get meetings. That's sort of the way it goes for me. I can get meetings everywhere. People, you know, laugh at my stuff. They like it. They, they, they usually refer to it as quirky. And I get a lot of emails. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but people in the in the agency realm, in agents and, and, and development, you know, people who are in the on the acquisition end, especially in Hollywood, they love to use the word love in all caps. Like people love, you know, the voice or they love the, you know, there's a lot of that. They don't want to buy it, but they love it. So I've tried to write comedy. One of the, I think the best comedy thing that I ever wrote uh, is a is a script called Man of Letters, the Russell Beeland story. And it's about a 40-year-old spoken word poet who lives at home with his parents in Anaheim in the shadows of Disneyland. And I really like it. It's one of those things that, you know, it, so far, it, no takers. It's just sort of sitting in my drawer, but I've never lost confidence in it. It's the kind of movie that I could see Will Ferrell starring in. That's sort of what I had in mind. You know, maybe him, maybe a Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Cohen maybe a Zach Galifianakis, like those kinds of people. But it's this funny, you know, if you can imagine, say, a Will Ferrell in this role with a heavy beard, wearing all black all the time, but yet living in the technicolor streets of Anaheim, roaming the streets of Toontown. You know, it's just, I, you can start to see how it could be sort of funny. And so, you know, today I was sitting around procrastinating and I opened up the folder you know, and, and it's the same thing as kind of opening up the drawer and seeing the dusty manuscript. I saw it for the first time and I clicked on it and I opened it and I started reading it and I liked it all over again. This is the movie that I want to see and not that many other people seem to want to really see it, at least not people who work in development at, at Hollywood studios. But I'm going to read you one of Russell's poems. Like basically the movie is like a sports movie. It's sort of like dodgeball, except that the sport is poetry like spoken word poetry. And the whole conceit of the movie is that, uh, you know, spoken word poetry is like a huge spectator sport. It's like the NFL. Like it, people fill stadiums to see these competitions. So in the world of the movie, poetry is huge. It's a comedy about poetry. Um, but it sort of follows the, uh, the, the architecture of a sports movie where there's the, you know, the collapse and then the redemption sort of thing. So Russell is, uh, 
you know, he's unrequited. He's lost his lover to, uh, you know, another poet named Tad St. John. And then this, this whole movie is about how he rises up again and takes the, the title, the national grand slam of, or world grand slam of poetry or whatever it is. So here's a poem by Russell Beeland. This is the kind of thing that you would see in the film. Here it goes. To whom it may concern, I burn for something greater, never content to be a spectator, riding down the Hudson River on the back of a savage alligator, flying through the sky at Mach 4 in search of my creator, a great debater, lightsaber, not afraid of Vader, voted for Nader on my way to pay dirt, unafraid of what it means to be obscene, I rattle sabers, cash in favors, six-pack abs and electric shavers, women scream my name in elevators, grab me by the hands and insist that we be maters and contemplators and online daters and inline skaters. To whom it may concern, I have wandered the streets of Anaheim all alone, been read my last rites via satellite phone, I'm in the zone, my soul has grown, my cover's blown, I rent to own, I've changed my tone, I wear cologne and give out loans to drunken loners with broken microphones. Actually, that's a lie. I live at home, and I'm a little bit scared to be alone, and I spend a lot of my free time staring at my parents' rotary dial telephone. They are often worried sick about me, as my sense of desperation has at times been full-blown. To whom it may concern, I have heard your voice under California stars. I have felt your presence in bars and in the back seat of my father's car. I had a dream that we met one night on the surface of Mars. You asked me where I wanted to go in life, and I responded by saying, Far. It was bizarre. To whom it may concern, I ask you for nothing in exchange for this song. I take solace in the warm smell of Kalidas and the resonating sound of the gong. I move along, right or wrong. The beat goes on. A wild poet streaks into the crazy breaking dawn. I don't know. And then, see, that's the thing. My head goes back and forth. I read this now, and I feel like it's really not that good. You know, maybe it's not funny. If Will Ferrell were saying it, though, maybe it is funny. But, you know, Russell writes these. He's got, you know, poems called, like, Would You Like to Pet My Soul? And then there's another one called, How Does It Feel to Have Me Living Inside You? I just feel like writers need to be made fun of as a group more, you know? And I also just have a really hard time uh, evaluating my own work. I think that's really what it comes down to. I was working on a novel today and loving it. And yesterday... I thought it was just a complete flaming piece of shit. And I guess that's how it goes. It's just this constant seesawing. It's amazing how one day you can think something is ingenious and then the next day open the drawer, pull it out, look at it, and it's a wreck. And you're right. It really is a wreck. Uh, again, I, I, I'm hoping that this is normal, at least somewhat. So there's that, and then I have been getting a lot of nice feedback on the podcast, and I want to thank everybody for, uh, you know, following the show on Twitter and for sending kind uh, emails, letting me know that you're listening and that you're liking it. Uh, it's a great thrill. I'm uh, I'm having fun doing it. I feel a little weird doing it. Uh, I'm just kind of sitting here. I get nervous. I drink some caffeine, and I do this. I sit here. I sometimes I have to do it like more than once. I have takes, you know, because I can't talk or I'll screw things up, but. You know, I'm I'm sort of feeling my way through it, and I think my whole uh, thinking is just to try to be honest. And if I do that, if that you know, if I can at least just sit here and speak honestly about what's happening, then it'll be tolerable. So, thanks to everybody for listening. I do want to uh, mention that I've gotten two letters from some authors, and uh, you know, these are two of the more prominent, uh, like more extensive thank yous that I've gotten. One is from an author named XTX, 
and the other is from an author named Frank Hinton. And so I was familiar with XTX. Uh, you know, she wrote an, uh, a collection of stories called Normally Special. That's really great. It's from Tiny Hardcore Press, and I can't recommend it highly enough. I really enjoyed that book. And then there's another writer named Frank Hinton who uh, runs an uh, online magazine called Medicine out of Canada. And I was familiar with that. And Frank sent me a really nice note. And what's interesting about XTX and Frank is that there's some degree of sexual ambiguity and just uh, ambiguity in general with, with, res- with respect to their online identities. XTX, nobody really knows who she is. Nobody's a thousand percent sure if she's a she. I'm pretty sure she's a, you know, she's a she. XTX is a she. And then uh, Frank Hinton, also similar. The, you know, all the online photos, all the Facebook avatars, everything. It's like a girl with hair in her face. You know, it's always like these shots with both of them where you can't quite see the face or it's just like their feet or whatever it is. And so, you know, those two people wrote to me to tell me they liked the show. And both seem to have some sort of online connection to Roxanne Gay. See, this is how it is online, especially you get into this literary world and you start to see these patterns in certain people. And I feel like I know these people. It's freaking me out. But I do find it interesting that two writers whose, uh, you know, whose brand, I hate to use the word brand, but whose like online presentation, whatever you want to call it, is rooted in ambiguity and anonymity. And that they would, you know, that this show would register with them and that they would like it. I think it comes down to that whole thing. You know, if I was spending all day presenting online, but I was anonymous uh, and I was dealing in that way, I think listening to a show like this would hopefully be, you know, sort of interesting and maybe something of a relief because it's just me sitting here rambling into the microphone and then having conversations with people, uh, you know, where candor is sort of the, you know, the only rule. So anyhow, thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, I'm going to keep, you know, putting shows out as long as, you know, you guys will continue to uh, tune in. So next up, my conversation with Alexander Maxick. It's a, you know, it's a great conversation. He's written a really great novel. And I think you're going to really like what he has to say. Gorgeous. Not a, cloud, not a cloud in the sky. Oh, it makes man. you want to live in Make sure to live here. Does it? Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah, I always have like, you know, you obviously have like the, the kind of the gray heroin sort of vision of Seattle. That's what I always right. think of it as, but you're, you're getting the good stuff. So how's book tour? Uh, it's been, it's been great. It's been great. Um, it's been very exciting to see my book in all these bookstores that I love. Um, I was at Elliott Bay last night and it's one of my favorite places in the world. And it was, that was, that was fantastic. So, fantastic. No, yeah, Elliott Bay is like the, you know, it's like one of the Northwest's big indies. It's like Powell's and Elliott Bay. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and they did it. You know, they they moved, um, and this this new this new bookstore is just beautiful, really, really beautiful. So now, kind of. what kind of turnout did you have? Um, I think we had about twenty five people there last night. I think that's right. Which which is which is good. Which is, which is good. I mean, L.A., there were, it was, it was, well, you were there. Yeah, a lot no, it's a great turnout. And then, like, we should, we yeah. should uh, mention for the listener's sake that, like, your reading in L.A. was supposed to be at Skylight, uh, but then there was, like, a power outage on the block that Skylight's on, and so you were in an Italian restaurant called, we should plug the restaurant, it's called Palermo, right? <laughs> Palermo, yeah, exactly. They were in, in, I, I, oh, great debt to Palermo's. 
Yeah, no. So you were in Palermo's. It was like this kind of narrow, long, narrow room, and it was like standing room only. Yeah, yeah. I think that's because there were tables full of cops having dinner. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but you know, and you're from Los Angeles, so you had uh, friends there and stuff. Yeah, there were there were a lot of friends there, and I, you know, one of my oldest oldest friends, um, in fact, my very first babysitter. Um, is a producer in, in Los Angeles, and she had a, a party for me afterwards. So she had a lot to do with why there were so many people there. Um, but it was great. It was great. Wow. So, I mean, did you feel like, does it feel like a homecoming? Because I know you, like, split your childhood in between L.A. and Idaho. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know about a homecoming. I mean, yeah, there, there, was, there was a nice sort of um, nice feeling of return, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of... Grew up uh, until I was until I was fourteen. I lived in in L.A. and it was um, yeah, it was nice to be back there. It was really nice to be back there. And so you know, you've had sort of like the dream ride. I mean, not not all the way along, but like this has been sort of a, a great. Uh, you know, for somebody who writes literary fiction, you can't ask for too much more. I don't think, right? I mean, you you started out. Uh, you know, I say this with like a, a small bit of pride. You know, you you were publishing online and in small journals. Um, you know, for a while and working on this book. Yep. And one of those places was The Nervous Breakdown. You're one of the original, like, 20 or yeah. so. One, one of the original 20 or so writers. We we met via Craigslist. Very, that's right. I, that's right. I, lo- I love that story. I love that I found you on Craigslist. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. There are of- not a lot of publishing opportunities on, on Craigslist, and, and um, I think yours was probably the only legitimate one available. Well, yeah, it's just, I mean, it was just to give the listeners like some idea, like basically when, mm-hmm. when I started the nervous breakdown, one of the initial concepts was that it was going to be like this, you know, international collection of writers. I kind of wanted to live vicariously through expatriates and I wanted to, right. hear, I wanted to hear what was going on in other parts of the world. So I just started throwing Craigslist's uh, ads up in various cities, you know, all over the the planet and you were one of the, yeah. the early responders and look how it worked out i mean it's crazy yeah it's great because i you know I, I it was at a time when i sort of had really decided all right i'm going to be a writer and i really had no idea how i would do that and so and especially in paris you know i felt very far from any kind of real serious publishing world and um so craigslist is just you know one of the places i looked to and i think that sort of demonstrates how ignorant i was um and I, and I saw your ad, and, and yeah, I think some of the first things I ever published in my life were, were on the Nervous Breakdown. Wow. So, uh, you know, just to just to get into, you know, your particular geographic path, you know, you, uh-huh. Los Angeles, and then you went to high school in Idaho up in Sun Valley. Right. And then, um, you know, college where? Uh, Whitman College in, in, in Washington State, actually, in Walla Walla, Washington. Okay, and what was that uh, with like? A, with a with a year in um, in Sydney at the University of New South Wales. Um, oh, you lived in Sydney for a year. I lived in Sydney for two years, actually. My one year, my junior year in in college, and then I went back after college and spent another year there. Oh, I knew you had uh, been there. I didn't realize you were there for that long. Like, how was that? Yeah, yeah, oh, it was great. It was really great. I I, I really loved Sydney and. Um, I mean, it wasn't the most academic time of my life. Um, <laughs> I was sort of dedicated to, to other other sides of my of my body or soul, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I cooked in a restaurant in Sydney for for a long time, and I was a an actor. Well, I was trying to be an actor there, and I was in a terrible play about Andy Warhol's life. Uh, um, were you Warhol? 
I was not Warhol. I was a um, I was a gigolo. Nice. And I wore um, little spandex shorts with the ass cut out of them in <laughs> one of my scenes. <laughs> Which, yeah, and, and I was and I was um, I was provided those shorts by a very tall transvestite costume designer. So it was were an you, interesting time. Were you? In my life. Were you? What were you waxing? Like what? Did, what did that involve? I mean, were you having? <laughs> Well, I was, you know, I was, I was very young at the time. Okay. You know, I had, I had far less, far less hair. Good. Uh, but they did, they did make me, they did, they, I had to, sh- I had to shave my legs and do the, do the whole thing. Yeah. And you went? Did you, yeah. get, did you ever go like, uh, did you ever go method on this? I did not. You did not. I did not. So you weren't like I did not. walking around in your free time, like the streets of no. Sydney. No. 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 I question your commitment. Well, I you know that's probably why I'm not an actor. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the seeds were sown long ago. So you're, you're living in <laughs> yeah. Sydney and you're cooking and then you're acting and you're there yeah. for a year doing that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, did then you just decided to bail and come back to the states, or you wanted to move? No, back? I fell in love with a um, with a, an American woman, um, and then and I sort of followed her back to the states, and she lived in Brooklyn. Um, and we got back to the States and that relationship did not last very long. So wait, how did you meet her in, in uh, Australia? Was she just like traveling? Well, she, <laughs> she was, um, the hotel, well, it's not really, it was a sort of a, a residential, a sort of part-time, short-term apartment building next door to this restaurant. And all of the models who came through, um, lived in that building. Oh my God. And, and then they would come to the restaurant and hang out at the bar and, and eat and do their work. And so I met this very attractive woman. Um, and, yeah, and, and so that's what took me out of there. Wow. Yeah, I can see yeah. how that would work. So then you get to Bro- – you're, you're living in Brooklyn? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say I was living there. No, 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 no. I, I did that. It, it was very clear that it was going to end um, pretty much by the time I got off the plane. So were you pissed? I mean, you came all the way, you ditch your life in Australia, and you come all the way to New York, and then you're basically like, you know. Well, no, I don't know. At the time, I wasn't, I, I just kind of floated. Um, I ended up at the Williamstown Theater Festival, uh, where I'd been, I'd worked as an actor the summer before, um, and I ended up in the literary department there, um, doing dramaturgical stuff and producing, you know, sort of, off off main stage plays and that kind of thing um and then i went and then i moved out to la from there okay where i was where i was going to become a a famous actor right so you get to la and and what happens with you there um i started delivering pizza um and italian food for louise's in brentwood okay and was living with a friend of mine in on the marina peninsula and um and I did that for a while and I had a had a brief brief role in um GI Jane. Wait, what? And, yeah, yeah, that's right. I was cut out of it, so don't go looking for me. Oh, damn. But I got my SAG card. Okay. And my and my hand is I think remains in the movie. <laughs> what like <laughs> can you give me the scene? Can you isolate this for people who want to see your hand? Um I it's been a while, I have to say. Since I since I watched the film, but I'm shaking Viggo Morganson's hand, and I think I think there's some sort of a some sort of ceremony. I'm receiving a medal, or someone's receiving a medal. Okay, and so you got to shake Viggo Morton's. You got to what's his name again? Arathorn or whatever, or Aragon? 
God, you're good. I have no idea. I barely remember the plot of that film. No, I, I just mean uh, I, I meant from The Hobbit or whatever from the. Uh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Arith- I don't remember. Aragon of Arathorn, or you know, you know. Right, that sounds that sounds right. That so sounds right. you were like hanging with him? Were you like actor to actor? No, 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 no. I mean, I was I was in a scene with him, and you know, I had I don't know. I don't think I even had a line. So, but I got my SAG card from that, and yeah. then I, I then I did a, a commercial um, for CVS Pharmacy, where I played an architect with a broken leg. An architect with uh, with gonorrhea. <laughs> and then, um, and that was pretty much the end of my acting career. That was it. I was a I was a bartender for a while at Lowe's Hotel, and then I was fired for giving away free drinks. And then I was a um, bartender at Planet Hollywood for, I think, two years. And um, and then I got sick of acting and took a job working for Bill Paxton's production company. What, so, like, in development? Yep, in development, yeah. yeah. So you're just, like, reading script after script? Reading scripts and writing the occasional treatment and, you know. Felt, I felt, for a while, I really liked the job. I felt very um, adult. Well, yeah, but you'd also, I think it's good training, you know, because it's, it's helpful to read bad scripts, and a lot of them are bad. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think you learn a lot about structure, you know, right, read, reading so many scripts. Yeah. Um, you, you start to see what, what, what works structurally and what doesn't. And I think I learned a lot about plot, um, stuff I didn't quite know I knew until later. So uh, you're doing that. Were you ever writing your own scripts? Like, were you writing scripts of your own on the side? No, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, as, as, as everyone in Los Angeles, I kind of toyed with the, with the idea, and I, you know, had various projects that I would write one day, which of course I never did anything with. Um, it's just, it's not my, it's not my preferred writing um, form. I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a very linear thinker, and I don't see stories um, before I write them. Yeah, like there's there's like a, a real like ma- almost mathematical structure to screenwriting that exactly doesn't exactly. seem to. I mean, I think some people might be able to approach fiction that way. You know, like in this real. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But all my math, all my sort of writerly calculus is retrospective. You know, I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen plot-wise in in my stories, and I and I always think. You know, I always I always begin with character and let the character sort of drive the plot, and I think that's a really difficult way to approach a screenplay because you really need to know, you know, what happens on page thirty, what happens with page ninety, and so on. Well, okay, so do you don't that doesn't sound like with your uh, with your novel that you did an outline. No, 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 not at all. I mean, you know, I, I guess it's a sort of temporal outline. I mean, I knew that the story would take place over the course of of a school year. Um, and that was very helpful because I, and I like to write where time is kind of, you know, is, is, is confined. Um, and I, and I, you know, I like, I love, I love stories that take place and, you know, over the course of a day, over the course of a week. Um, and that, that appeals to me as a writer very much. And I think that's because I don't think linearly. Um, and so when, when those, those kind of external constraints are already in place, it makes it, it makes a plot easier to work out. Well, no, I mean, I've heard, I've read uh, interviews with writers of historical fiction, and I think I just kind of envy writers of historical fiction in general because, you know, they have they have the plot. <laughs> you know, if you're right, writing, exactly. if you're writing like historical fiction about, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln's presidency, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to figure out the end. <laughs> right, absolutely. You, you got it. 
Yeah, and it's a relief, you know. I think if and I it would probably be a great advantage if I took the time and I thought, okay, this is what's going to happen on you know at, at at point A in the story, and this is what's going to happen at point B because then you're I think kind of liberated to write towards those those plot points. But I just I've tried, and I and it just it makes me feel uh, claustrophobic, and and I just can't I can't get my I can't get my brain to work that way. Yeah, me neither. So. But you didn't even have, like, an idea of, uh, you know, I know that you had, like, this, you know, the school year as sort of the time frame for the story unfolding, uh, but you had to have had some sense of how the book would end, correct? I didn't really, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I did have a sense um, of what would happen to one of the characters, certainly. Um, and I, and there was all, there's also a scene, there's a, a protest scene, which I was sure I would include in the book. And I knew that it would be important in terms of plot and that and that it would you know it, it would be a it would be a point a major point of change um for other characters but beyond that i really had no no sense of where of where the book was going um certainly for you know and i you know people have been people have asked me why i i left the you know left it so it's not a very conclusive ending and I keep getting these questions about writing sequels, um, and I wonder if that's just because I, you know, I never quite decided where the, you know, where the characters would end up at the end of the story. But I'm not interested at all in writing writing stories about, you know, where 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 everything is kind of cleanly concluded and and, and explained. No, that drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, and uh, you know, it, as far as the sequel question goes, you haven't. Have you ever thought? Do you think there's any possibility that you would write some sort of continuation for one of the no. characters? No, it's done. No, I think it's done. I, I'm, I'm. I feel like I've done what I want to do with this, with this story, and with these characters. I mean, I was, I've been surprised by how adamant people have been at these readings about you know the necessity of a, of a, um, of a sequel, and I, and I think. I don't know. I find that flattering. I'm glad that people care that much. But I, I, I want to write other things, and I want to write about uh, other other kinds of people. Has there ever been an author who just wrote, like, you know, ten books in their life, and it was just a, one story? I guess maybe like the, like J.R.R. Tolkien, maybe to go back to the hobby. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could argue that, you know, that, that Faulkner did that. It's not, you know, not the same story, but certainly... You know, revisiting characters and and you know keeping everything in a single world. Right. Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I the more I think about writing and the more I write, the more interested I am in in trying to get away from um, you know familiar worlds and familiar classes of people. And I don't know. I like the idea of kind of venturing further away from my own life. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't. I feel like some writers really work from the inside out, and some writers tend to work more from the outside in. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there's a right or a wrong. I think it's just how you go, you know. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, no matter what I, no matter what I write about, I'm always writing about, you know, my own experience. I think. Well, and, um, okay. So this is this is an interesting point to ask you then, because you know, uh, you deserve nothing is told from uh, multiple points of view, one of which uh -huh. is female, correct? Uh huh. Yeah. And I'm curious to know, I mean, because you've done a deft job of writing from a uh, a young girl's point of view. And, Thanks. like, how did you channel that? I don't know. Um, this is a, you know, this is a, a, a question that, I, that I've that i been asked um, 
before and and particularly by you know women who've come to the readings who who've, who've been skeptical of of you know of of, of a male writer writing particularly that young a, a woman um i don't really know i might i think the best answer i have to that is that is that i was so afraid to write that character um because the first draft didn't include her point of view um that and i and i i spent all this time writing the first draft and I think I was—I knew that I needed to write her character, and I just didn't have the courage to do it. And I was thinking about her for a long, long time. You didn't have the courage to let that little girl inside you out. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I—so when I finally sat down to write it, it just came out, um, and it came fast. I mean, it was—I think I wrote her in three weeks or a month or something. Oh wow! Um, and I—and I—and I think it's because, well, a because I talked to a lot of my female friends and asked them, you know, and I, and I had them vet everything that I, that I wrote. And I, and I also think I, I you know, something that I've been thinking about for so long that the, that I sort of had the answers. Um, but there's no question that it was, you know, it was vetted by, by a lot of friends. Okay. So you and almost, I, it's almost like you did formal research. Like you were. Oh, no question. Yeah. Yeah. What was and like, it, give me some examples of like, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking of certain things for this character, or you're trying to get to the voice, and then you go to one of your female friends. Like, what was some of the advice that you got, or you know, like, can you remember anything um, specific? Yeah, I mean, I had a, a, two 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 friends who, who both encouraged me to write more about the the sort of sexuality of the character, um, which is exactly not, where you exactly where you probably wouldn't want to go. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> That seemed, you know, that seemed like a presumption, and um, I and I did that finally, and I and I think once I decided I would do that, it it allowed me the freedom to imagine other equally intimate aspects of of this, you know, this character's life. Right, you have to kind of go where the fear is, or something. You know? Right, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, but well, you know, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, like, just to try to keep tracing, you know, your life story, we kind of left off in Los Angeles. Uh, uh-huh. You're at Planet Hollywood, you're bartending, you're kind of done with acting, and then you start to work in development for Bill Paxton and his little shingle. Yeah. And yep. uh, and then what? And then I, start, I, I started volunteering at a, at a center for kids who just uh, come out of juvenile hall um, called the Aviva Center. And I wonder, I don't even know if it's still there. It was up in Hollywood, um, and it was kind of like a, you know, it was a residential center, and but it wasn't in any way, uh, you know, there was, there was, it wasn't a jail. I mean, I think the, the kids could leave when they wanted to. Um, and I taught, I taught creative writing there, and I really loved it. Um, it was a, it was a great, great experience. And um, so I did that for a while, and I sort of came to the conclusion that I wanted to, I wanted to try teaching for a while. So I. I quit. Um, I quit Bill Paxton's company um, and started teaching at an Orthodox Jewish school on Fairfax in L.A. Wow! So, and you're the the son of an educator, correct? Yeah, I have two educators. Yeah, two. So you this this is in your blood. Yeah, I guess it is. I guess it is. Yeah. I mean, as as I've, I've sort of talked about this before, but the sort of germ of this of this novel. Um, came from the experience of seeing my parents um, as teachers and as kind of public people 
in in school settings because I was often at the same school where, for you know, when I was in elementary school, my mom was an administrator at that school, and then later on, um, and my dad worked at Westlake before it was Harvard Westlake, right. and I kind of grew up around you know around teachers and around his students. Um, and then when we moved to to Idaho, my dad was the headmaster of the school where I was a student, and my mom uh, was the head of the elementary school of that same place. And and as a senior, my dad was my was my teacher as well as being my headmaster. What was that um, like? It was it was it was difficult. Um, I think it was less difficult than it would have been had it been a, you know a massive public school somewhere. Mm. Um, but it was hard, you know, because, because well, for all the obvious reasons. But I would see them, you know, the difference between my, my dad at home and my dad at school, and same thing with my mom. So I was always very conscious of that kind of divide between public person and, and private person. Well, and, you know, growing up, in, growing up in L.A., I was always, um, you know, I had a lot of friends who were the children of celebrities. And, um, you know, I, I always saw it as a, as a similar thing. Like who? You know, the, oh, I don't want to talk about that. You're not going to... I don't want to mention anyone's name, but, but you certainly... Should na- you should name drop. We want name drop no, on this show. No, 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 I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that. Um, <laughs> um, but, no, but it is but, similar, and, and it seems like some of the things that you, uh, that you did, uh, you know, the acting in particular... And, and, you know, I feel like there's an element of performance to teaching because I've taught and, you know, and, I, and you know, no one really knows how to do it when they start. But like, you know, you walk into a classroom and there's 35 people sitting there and right. uh, you, have, you have to entertain them in addition to educating them. I mean, there's there's that element to it. There's a presentation yeah. element. And then, you know, there is there's a formality to it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a big sort of. It's a, it's, a, it's a big aspect of the novel is, you know, that kind of performative aspect of, of teaching and, you know, the, the importance of it and the, the sort of danger of it and, um, you know, the, the kind of disconnect between, between the, you know, the, the, the private person and the performance as teacher. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's doing well, the book. I mean, it's, it's out there and it's, 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 it seems like it's moving some copies. Yeah, it's it's been it's been doing really well, um, and it's you know it, it's very it's great that it's published by an independent press. Um, and I and I I may have mentioned this to you before, but when you know when I first um, had received the offer from Europa, I was a little bit ambivalent because I I wanted you know the dream is that you're published by Knopf or Random House or one of these major publishers and um and I didn't know Europa when when I got the offer but in the end it's it's just an incredible um stroke of luck because they've been incredibly supportive and hands-on and personal and they really you know every independent bookstore I've been to in in this country knows them they have a great reputation there's often a sort of separate Europa display um and it feels good to be part of an independent press particularly at this time in publishing and book selling um with the power of of amazon and and so on it's and i and i like that it makes you know it makes me feel good and i feel like in the end it was it was a it was a great it's i've been really fortunate well yeah and, and uh you know we should just so listeners understand like 
your book is published by Tonga Books, which is an imprint of Europa Editions, correct? Exactly. And, exactly, and Tonga yeah. is helmed by Alice Siebold, who uh, wrote The Lovely Bones, among other books. Yeah. yeah. And I had, I had actually, I just read in, in, um, in San Francisco uh, several bookstores, but we did this event as part of Litquake um, in, at Tosca in, in San Francisco in North Beach. And and she came out and introduced me, um, and it was the first time I'd actually met her in person. I and mean, we talked many times on the phone, and she, you know, she was very hands-on in editing the novel. Um, but it was just—it was really a satisfying and exciting experience to, to have her there, um, and to and to be so feel to feel so supported by her and by you know and by the publisher. Oh God, it's like a, I mean, it's like a writer's uh, dream come true. It really is. It really is, and you know, and I think you know, probably a lot of people who were who were at the event were there not so much for my book, but just to sort of catch a glimpse of her. Um, and I love the idea that you know that a successful novelist is generous enough to support you know an unknown an unknown novelist. Um, I just I like I like that, and I think it's I think it's sort of it's the it should be the future of publishing. I mean, I think it's the only way. That independent um, publishers are going to survive. Well, no, I mean, I because that's the thing. I've had this thought. Like as soon as uh, you know, I read the press release about uh, you know Alice taking over this imprint, and and then I'd seen it in other iterations. Like I'd seen it with like celebrities. I want to say Chelsea Handler has her own publishing imprint, and huh. you know, you know, it's it's two different sides of the same coin, kind of where you have. Uh, you know, uh, someone who's got a platform, someone who's got a mm-hmm. big readership, and you let them. Well, like, why not let them take on an editorial role? Because yeah, and ideally they can help to uh, to bring readers to new and deserving authors. That's sure, and the, you know, and the skeptics say, well, you know, just because you've written a, a commercially successful novel doesn't make you equipped to be an editor. Um, and I think you know, it's a, it's a fair question. And I have to admit that you know what did I you know I had no idea whether or not she would be a good editor, um, and I suspect you know she probably didn't know she'd be a good editor. But I think she was an exceptional editor, and um, I mean I'm sure this is this is predictable, but it's true. I mean I really I really feel like I learned a great deal about about the book and about editing in general, and she was you know just sort of relentless both on a line-by-line line basis, but also uh, uh, you know, looking at the novel um, generally. And, and she was just so sure of what the book was. And um, at times, you know, I, I tried to back off the ending. And she was just, she, she was just stubborn and said, no fucking way. You know, this is the book you wrote, and this is the book we're going to publish. And... And I'm really, you know, I'm really grateful for that. Well, All of that is to say that, you know, she's a, she's a, she's a really good editor. And, um, I think, you know, there, there's, there's a risk, and Europa took a risk. You know, they didn't, they didn't know. All they knew is that they liked her work. They knew that they published her stuff in, in Italy and in Italian. But, you know, I, I, I guarantee you that there was no, you know, there was no editor exam given before she took on that role. Well, and you know, it's a, it's a valid point. Not all writers are, are cut out to be editors. No. No, because writers are, are, are so often, I mean, even if they, they have the, the sort of the mind for editing, we're so often selfish and crazy and, and tight with our time, you know, and not to mention jealous and, and ambitious. 
Um, none of those things make for, you know, editors need to be generous people, I think. Yeah. And they need to be genuinely invested in the, you know, in the work they're editing. And, and you know, I don't, writers, in my experience, are, are not often willing to, to give up their time to, to help someone else. And I've been struck by, you know, so it's something I, I, I took away from Iowa, is, you know, more than anything, well, yeah, I think more than anything else, you know, what I left Iowa with were, were you know, three friends who are generous mm-hmm. and great, great writers, but also, you know, but, but also generous writers, kind writers, um, who will be friends and will, and readers for, for the rest of my life. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm moved by that. And I, and I think it's, it's incredibly important, um, always. And particularly now when, you know, I think particularly literary writers, they, they, sh- they need to support each other. Well, and, and it's something you know, it's something I'm grateful to you for. I have, I have to, I have to say, not to make this too warm and fuzzy, but um, you know, you've been supportive of me and of the book from the time you know I wrote to you from Craigslist. Right. And all of that, all of that matters to me, and it, it matters to me more and more um, as I do this, and I sort of go to these independent bookstores, and I, you know, and I read the paper and see how, you know, how difficult and, and confused and probably in trouble the publishing world is. It. Well, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. I think writers, you know, if you get any kind of break, um, or if you're, just if you're in the same struggle, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's hard enough uh, alone, you know, it's, yeah. it's good to kind of reach out to one another. And frankly, I think writers need uh, community, you know, I think it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a good thing for all parties. And, yeah, absolutely. you know, just to get back to, uh, to the whole, the, the skill set that is required of an editor you know, one of the things that strikes me, like in addition to people sort of being unwilling to put the time in, which is mm-hmm. a, a very valid point, I think part of it too, uh, you know, sometimes I found like, especially in my workshop experience is that you have certain people who, when they're reading in an editorial uh, manner, they're, they're assessing work and then offering their particular input. Like I think nine times out of 10, people will read your work and tell you how they would, would do it if they were you. Right as opposed to having that like kind of creative empathy that sort of sel- that sort of selflessness where they they read your book and are able to identify with it uh at the level of your intention mm-hmm. even if you're not conscious absolutely. of it do you know what i'm saying no, like, absolutely yeah absolutely absolutely i mean that's that's the you know people always say you know this 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 the popular criticism and there's this movement you know to criticize mfa programs and you know to talk about the factory and so on, and and that's it's not been my experience at all. And you know the best readers, as you say, are the are the, the, the readers who identify the intent of the writer and try to you know edit according to that intent. Correct, right, and right. That's what I got from you know that's what I got from Iowa. Nobody nobody at Iowa said you should not write like this. You should write this way. You know, this is the right way to write. Nobody ever said that to me. And I read writing from, you know, in, in all different styles and, and, you know, about different kinds of people and so on. Um, and certainly I read writing that I didn't like there. But I also had, you know, met very generous and, 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 and smart readers and writers there. Sure. Well, just to, I mean, we're going to, I want to get to the to that point, but... Okay. Uh, you know, just to kind of like in a, in a looping manner, get back to your uh, your biography like you were uh-huh. I think we left off and you were teaching 
at a school for was it Hasidic Jews in on Fairfax in L.A. Is Orthodox, Jews. Orthodox, yeah, Orthodox, yeah. Okay, so you're yeah. t- you're teaching there, and then what? Um, well, I, I, I taught there for um, for what was it? I guess two years, um, and that was you know that was the first time I'd ever taught, and I really I loved that I loved that job. Um, because you know, I first of all, I had no idea if I could teach, and and I discovered that I could teach a little bit, and I also I liked um, you know those kids. It's interesting that I I saw that someone who was trained to read and from a young age to, to study um, religious texts and to look for symbol and to look for you know subtext and various meanings is somebody who is really well trained to read literature. And those kids were those kids were fantastic. And they could read, you know, they they, they even if they had very little experience reading um, contemporary fiction, they were so good at it so fast and I think because they'd been trained all their lives to do it, you know. That's interesting. So that was a that was a really it was a really interesting experience. Um, and I you know, it was just it was fun. I really liked it. And so but then and then you left Los Angeles to go to, I, I, I did. I left, I left Los Angeles. I I, um, I moved to Paris and um, and and taught there for a while. But, um, so what prompted this, though? Like, how, I mean, you just you just decided well, Paris, or it was like kind of that was no, no. I mean, I, this is a it's, it's always a sort of embarrassing story. But I I, I had you well, read Hemingway when I was when I was seventeen. I read A Movable Feast, and the book is you know that's the book that changed my life in in the way in, in the most sort of you know you know you have to sort of forgive give the cliche but it's just true i mean i had i not read that book i wouldn't have fallen in love with paris and i wouldn't have i don't know you know i don't know why that happens but there was just something about that book that made me love this version of of paris well no and i i, I talked about this in a previous episode uh, where uh, I, I was talking about the lost generation and their ability to make you want to be where they are, you know, like mm-hmm. you, you yeah. read, you read what like you just, and, and the thing about it is that the reality of, of those lives and that time obviously doesn't match up with the ideal, but mm-hmm. there's something about that writing, that era, the, unlike anything else I've ever read. Cause I had the same bug for the same, yeah. you know, same reason practically. And yeah. it's like, I don't know what it is, but it makes me want to be there and I want to be sitting in some cafe and, yeah. You know, like, but that's—I mean—that's what—that's what I just wrote a little piece about, you know, about this um, for for a blog, and I just—I think I've been thinking about it, and that's what all for me anyway. That's what all the best writing does is that it makes me, in one way or another, want to participate in the life being described. Yeah, you know, where you feel like, even if it's a terrible thing that you're reading about, you want to. You want to be there in some way. You you want to participate, um, and nobody has ever done that for me more than more than Hemingway. You know, and that book is just it's just he captures this this sense of place and this this very particular moment in time and the way that that you know that that the sort of fleeting nature of that moment and you know he's so oh he's so he loves so much you know that that. The, the sort of the sensuality of that of the moment, and I know he's made fun of, and he's sort of he's not in style 
but I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I have to defend him forever because I, you know, some of his stuff I, I, I like less. But when he's good, he's just, I don't think there's anyone better still. Yeah, well, no, and, you know, it's weird. It's like I, I love Hemingway. Uh, I grew up on those books in much the same way. And then he sort of fell out in my mind. Like I, then what I did is I started reading, like, biographies because, you know, I got, mm-hmm. I got curious. And I do that a lot. with If I read a writer's books, if I really go through their entire, uh, is it oeuvre, you know? Uh, I can yeah. never, I can never pronounce that word, but... Uh, you know, if I read every uh, all of the books of a writer, I'll, I'll often then go to literary biography or memoir, uh-huh. just wanting to know like about the life underneath the work. And you know, you do that, and then it started to get—I don't know—I don't know what it was. I think I just got too hypercritical. And there, are, there are certain you know ways in which he treats female characters, and there's sure. like this macho thing going on. And um, I'll catch myself like bashing, but then I almost like because I'm—I was raised Catholic. I will feel guilty and I will silently apologize to Hemingway. I'm not even shitting you. I'll be like, I'm sorry, dude. Yeah. You know, like, like, yeah. like that kind of thing. Like, I don't mean to be mean. Like, thanks for yeah. bringing me into books. You know, it's just that like, I don't want to be like, you know, too worshipful either. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. No, of course not. Yeah. Of course not. Um, I mean, I have it sort of, I had it kind of double the, 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 the pressure in, in a sense, because I, I grew up in, in the town where he lived where he killed himself, where yeah, he's buried. Yeah, and catch him. Uh, yeah, and, you know, there's a there's a beautiful Hemingway memorial, um, just a tiny little uh, sculpture bust of, of Hemingway, and, um, you know, it goes along this creek. And, I mean, just to give you an idea of how sort of devoted slash pathetic I was, you know, when I was feeling alienated as a sort of, you know, privileged white kid in, in, in Idaho, I would go and sit at that memorial and, you know, contemplate the, 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 <laughs> the meaning of my life and whatever that meant so have you ever been, um, have yeah. you been to his house there i mean is that oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you can yeah, go can I've you go here. in is it a is it a museum it's not a museum um it's i think it's i think it's owned at this point um by the nature conservancy and they've tried to make it a museum but the the residents you know it's just a house in a residential neighborhood and, and the residents refuse to allow it because they don't want the traffic I can understand which I, think, which I think, yeah, I can, but but it's not like you know it's Madonna's house, and I think they probably overestimate you know the, the traffic. But who knows? Maybe they're right. Well, but and it's, it's, it's also it's, it's also pretty macabre. I mean, it's like you know, uh, it is. And you go there, and you know nothing or very little has changed. I mean, there you know he's there. There's still his trunks with his name stenciled on them. When I was there, there was a little, um, I think it was on a napkin, a little a little drawing by Picasso addressed to, to Hemingway hanging on the wall. Right. Um, and I cannot imagine what that's worth, you know. Yeah. I'm probably, you know, providing fodder for all kinds of uh, criminals, but it, well, it, it's, um, it's really, it's, it's strange. I mean, when I was there, there were, there were glasses in the, in the, in the bedside table. Um, it's terrifying. And it's, and it's you know, I, I think it's, it's also so obviously so sad. Oof, yeah, um, and, I mean, and, uh, you know, it's it's. I'm trying to think of like a a good way to put it, but I I think that to have I I don't I don't know I'm just not in favor of the idea of like tourists traipsing through this house where he shot himself. You yeah, know? Just I, seems, I understand. It's, yeah, I understand. It, it seems too uh, it seems too grim, and I feel like there are other places like out in nature, like to have a memorial seems better. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that memorial is you know if you ever have a chance to get up there, it is really one of 
the most beautiful of those I've ever seen. Well, and you do know, too, you know the story about Hunter Thompson going into the house and catch him and stealing, like, a pair of antlers off the wall. No, I don't know that story. He did. True story. He, he, ripped, huh. him, he ripped him off the wall and had him in his, in his place in, uh, you know, Woody Creek forever. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Is, that, so, is, that, is that really true? Totally true. 100%. Huh. I mean, I, I, mean I, I have no reason to doubt that Hunter Thompson would would have been you know would have had the stones to do something like that i think they were hanging there so anyway yeah. you know to you know i think that the paris fascination you know it, it holds sway in a lot of writers minds whether they want to admit it or not but you yeah. know what was it like you know you, you finally decide you're going to do it you get this teaching job over there mm-hmm. and you fly over there what's it what was the reality because you lived there for how many years Okay, so you spent seven years in Paris. From the day you arrived with like a head, yeah. a head full of dreams to the day yeah. you left, you must have, you know, your perspective must have changed pretty significantly. It did. Um, and I, I don't know why I didn't know this, but I was so, I mean, that dream was so powerful and this, this fantasy was so powerful. And when I got there, I was just, I, I don't think I... I don't think I had ever been as happy. I was 29. I promised that I would live there. I promised myself that I would live there before I was 30. Because in my, in my mind at the time, 30 was the cutoff between young man and adult or even old man. And because Hemingway said, you know, if you have a fortune of living in Paris as a young man, Paris will stay with you forever. You know, Paris is a movable feast, that whole thing. So I got there and I thought, all right, I, I, I did it. I was in love with somebody at the time. Um, and, you know, she lived in Spain and she was an artist. And we were just, I, you know, I just lived, I did everything. I didn't sleep. Um, and about five months in, I just crashed. Yeah. And I, I remember, I thought, well, I'll tell the story anyway. Um, I remember going to Spain to see, to see this, to see this woman I was Wait, seeing. How did you? How did you meet her? You were living in L.A. And... I I actually met her in L.A. Um, strangely enough, and she was she was going to Spain at the time that I was going to Paris. So mm. it was a kind of perfect thing. Um, and she was a you know she she still is an artist and um, and so I you know I was just living. We were traveling all the time, and I was going out all the time, and I was staying out late. And you know of course I started smoking cigarettes and 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 drinking too much, and I was just sort of living this life that I thought I had to live to, 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 to do it right. Um, and, you know, they started getting colder, and I went out to, I went to Spain, and I got to her house. Uh, she lived in this beautiful apartment um, in Segovia, outside of Madrid, and she was living on this square, and it was just, you know, it was just idyllic, and I was so tired. And I got to her house, and she only had, I think, one pillow, and that was the thing. Like, that was the thing that set me off. And I just lost my shit. And I just sort of fell apart. <laughs> and, I, and I realized, you know, later in talking to her about it, that, you know, I was just exhausted. And that was the first time that I thought, you know, and I guess it's an indication of how sort of immature I was. It was the first time it really occurred to me that Paris, and, and, and for that matter, any other city in the world, wouldn't solve my life right and i i mean it sounds maybe that sounds you know maybe it's not clear but no it's totally it clear just, like i mean just like just, 
There's something about the one pillow. That's like a, yeah. That's like the stuff. Yeah. Of, that's the stuff of a good essay or a story or something. I guess so. I mean, I just fell apart, and I, and I don't. I was so upset, and it wasn't the pillow, of course. I was just, I was just, I think, sad that in the end, I was just gonna, you know, I was gonna be a human being, and I was gonna be tired, and I was, I wouldn't be able to live as fully as I as I wanted to live. You know, and I, I've had and I had this problem often in Paris, where I, I sort of here were all and in Europe in general here were all of these extraordinary places, and extraordinary people, um, and beautiful cities, and I wanted to become part of them, in a way that I couldn't quite describe. I wanted to sort of enter into those places, and I couldn't quite do it. And I didn't know how to do it, and for that matter, I didn't know exactly what I meant by entering into them. I just knew I wanted to be closer to the beauty of the place. And I kind of, I don't know, like I, I, I got to this point where I thought, man, I'm just, I'm not living here the way that I imagined I would live there. Well, and you can't, and you can't fully, I mean, I imagine, like, as an expatriate, like, as much as you work to learn the language and you got fluent, or at least functionally fluent, uh, there is, you know, you're still an American living abroad right. in a foreign country and like, you're never going to fully integrate. Exactly. You can't. Exactly. And, and, yeah. And you know, you imagine in your, well, and I did anyway, in my kind of American arrogance that I would arrive in Paris and pick up French. Like it's just, you know, something you pick up and, and, you know, I would fall wildly in love with, you know, some French woman and, and everything would just sort of be easy. And of all the cities in the world, um, you know, people say New York is the is the most difficult city in the world to sort of make it in. But I I always thought Paris was harder than any place. Why? Because it's it's you know New York at least allows for that American fantasy that if you work hard enough and you're you know creative enough and and tenacious enough, then you can make it there. That's the you know that's the sort of New York dream, and everyone sort of buys into it. And Paris, that, you know, that's an American sort of affectation, you know. Paris is, is, is cold and closed and, and, and entrenched and provincial. Um, and so, you know, and people are not interested in opening their arms to foreigners in any way, shape, or form. Well, and um, and of course, so, so what you're yeah, saying is there's not a lot of... Uh... You know, there's not a lot of uh, fluidity among the classes. You know, you're not people no, are like climbing. The, they're not climbing the ladder in Parisian society. It's like you're kind of born into where you are. Is that what you're saying? Ab- well, I, I'm saying that. I mean, that is absolutely true. Um, but even inside a given class, you know, there's not people aren't moving. You know, you grow. It's it's one of those cultures where you go to school and you make your friends, and those friends are the friends you have forever. Right. And you know, you, you people people travel a lot in groups, and people tend to stay in France when they do travel. And you know, you have your your if you are of a certain class, you have your you know you have your home in in the city, and you have your home out in the country somewhere, and that's and that's it. And you don't go out looking to meet new people, and people are suspicious of foreigners, you know. Um, and of course, this is a generalization, and I know lovely French people who are not at all like this. But as a you know, as a general rule, you know, people are closed. They're, they really are. And I found that. And the city itself feels cold. And I don't think this is true of France so much as it's true of Paris. Hmm. Um, you know, and Paris is, is particularly difficult. And it's difficult even for 
people, you know, from from other parts of the country who come to France and try to, you know, establish a life there. So, so when did you start working on the book? Started working on the book maybe four four years into being there, I guess. Um, I mean, really started working, you know, working on it. And uh, I guess I finished it um, three years. I mean, I'm never quite sure how to answer this question because, you know, the first draft it was, is really not, you know, at all what the book is now. Um, but I finished, you know, I finished the book and, and, and try, you know, went out and tried to find an agent, and, um, and that took a long time. And then he sent it out, and, and nothing really happened, and so I went to Iowa. Okay, so wait, so how many agents did you submit to? Oh man, um, I, I mean I, I can't I can't say for sure, but I would I I think in the in the sixty to seventy range. Oh. And, ha- I mean, and I mean you wound up with a, is it Eric Simonoff? Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. To, that's a good one to land with. Yeah, it was, and it, it's it's just it's you know the number of times I've sort of seen the kind of the arbitrary nature of of, of literary decision making. I mean. I don't understand it. I mean, there's so many, so many of these agents who I've never heard of. Um, people who, you know, and just like, it sounds like they're working out of a garage in Queens. They might be. They, you know, wrote me these, you know, sort of incoherent emails. Or they have these kind of arcane systems where you have to write, you know, a summary of your entire novel and then, you know, have it notarized before you can submit it to them. Oh, God. And then, and so it was just, you know, rejection after rejection. Um I mean, you know, email makes it easy to 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 declare these people. Yeah. But then, yeah, one one morning, I got an email from him, and he said, "Loved your book. Want to talk about it?" And then he took me on. Wow. Well, and so but then we had the same same experience with publishers, you know. Wow. And like, so how many how many times did you go through the hoops with publishers? Did you, did you get close, and then it fell apart, or is it just like I don't think we I don't think we even came all that close. I mean, we had some nice rejection letters, but nobody. You know, I guess we came close with uh, maybe at St. Martin's. There was an editor there who, who really liked it, but she didn't. I don't think she could get it past her, her boss. But I don't even remember. I don't remember. I just remember that. You know, there was some possibility there. So did you? I mean, what was, what was like the dark night of the soul? Like, did you? I mean, were you just like? When did it? Did you ever like get to the point where you were just like, "Fuck all! I'm I'm quitting this racket." <laughs> I have a hard time <laughs> giving up um, on things like this. So I, you know, Eric started to say, look, just, just, just put it in the drawer. We've been out with it twice um, to all the major houses. The, you know, you did your rewrite. I just don't, you know, he said, I just don't think it's going to happen right now. Write another book. And I knew that that was probably the, the, that was the best advice. Um, but I kept saying every now and then I'd hear about a, you know, a good independent. And I would say, hey, you know. Why don't we send it here? And he would do it to, to his credit. You know, I mean, he's got some, he's got a lot going on. And, and I, you know, Milkweed Editions and Melville House and these sort of and other press, these smaller presses, you know, they're not going to make they're not going to make him any money. Um, but he kept doing it. Right. And I and I and I, you know, I think that's pretty impressive given his his client list. Um, but none of them took it. I mean, it was just every single publisher. Every publisher in this country has seen a copy of this book, and hmm. they all rejected it. It just takes um, it just takes one. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And then, you know, we Alice bought it, or, or Europa bought it in, in 48 hours, and then, you know, two weeks after that, it was sold to Hachette in the UK, or John Murray, which is a subsidiary of Hachette. And since then, it's sold to, I think, we're eight countries now. Wow. So I, it's that, I just don't, I really don't understand how, you know, how that, how that happens. Well, I mean, I don't know. You know there's there's don't no middle ground there, you know. It's, it's not like it was a sort of, I don't know. But I'm happy. I'm happy that it worked out this I was way. Gonna say, I was going to say, don't ask questions. Just let it happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. I, you know, I do want to get to Iowa because that was, okay. the, that was the middle territory where, you know, you, yeah. you wrote this book. You were having trouble uh, finding a home for it, and then you submitted it to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And, you know, this is Iowa, you know, is one is something that I feel like literary writers in particular, uh, you know, it, it lives in all of our imaginations, at least to, uh-huh. to some extent. If you're if you've ever applied for MFAs, chances are you probably submitted there or at least thought uh-huh. about it. And yeah. like, I, I have this like I have this sort of a vision, uh, this sort of like metaphorical vision of the Iowa Writers Workshop as like top gun for writers. Uh-huh. And like where I'm picturing like you show up on the first day and you're like wearing sunglasses and uh-huh. you're chewing on a toothpick and like, you know, uh, and even like, I mean, I've actually thought about this to the extent where like the, the whole, I feel the need, the need for speed is instead like, uh-huh. I feel the need, the need to read. Uh, yeah. We all wear, you know, we all wear jumpsuits. Yeah. yeah. And like you, you go like nose to nose with another member of your class. <laughs> he calls you dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Like what is it? Reckless, I think. Yeah, you're reckless. You're reckless, Maxic. Um, <laughs> that's right, Ice. And so I'm curious to know uh, what is it really like. Um, it is. Well, first of all, I should say that I that I, that I had you know I was intimidated as hell. Um, I didn't. It was absolutely a legendary place for me, and had been for many many years. And I got there, and it's far more casual on one hand than I, I imagined. You know, I think I sort of imagined that I would be, there would be a, you know, a sort of indoctrination ceremony and there would be trumpets and violins and capes and it's like it's none of that. It's like skull and It's bones. like, you know, you get in and you're in and it's all very casual. Um, you go to a workshop once a week and you talk about fiction constantly and it's you know there are a lot of ambitious people there there are a lot of very talented people there um was there any bitchiness uh, in the workshops like did it ever get get heated yes absolutely absolutely i mean you know i think that kind of thing ebbs and flows you have you know certain combinations of people who are not probably it's a, it's a combination that probably are not um, the most constructive combinations. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, people are competitive. People, I shouldn't say people. I mean, writers, I think, in general are competitive and ambitious and insecure and very, very strange and crazy in their way. So you put all of those people um, in, a, in a small space, and it's, uh, it's strange. But I, I loved it. You know, and, and it's easier for me to say that I loved it the further away from it I get. Um, but I learned I learned a lot, and I you know I made these friends who I'll you know who I'll, I'll have for forever. I think. Well, do you think and do you right, think that it helps? Do you think that it helps your career? I mean, I I've, I think it does. Like to at least in some small way that like when your book goes out, 
uh, you know, in galley form to reviewers and they flip it over. And on the back, it says like Alexander Maxick is a Truman Capote fellow at the Iowa writers workshop. Like I got to believe that like in some small psychological way that probably helps you a little bit or does it hurt you? I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't think that it makes any difference to reviewers. I think it makes a huge difference to agents. Um, I mean, I had an agent, but when I got to Iowa, but I, you know, agents come through and they all year long, and you interview you interview the agents, you know. I mean, or, or sort of both both things happen. Um, and you know, if, if, if there's no question that if you send a story to a magazine and you're at Iowa or have graduated from Iowa, you get probably more attention or more immediate attention than somebody who isn't at Iowa. Um, I'm just going to start saying. I, I'm just going to start saying that in my bio that I was. Uh, yeah, seriously. I, mean, I, that'll... <laughs> I, I was the F. Scott Fitzgerald you know, <laughs> fellow emeritus. Right. right. Yeah, I think I think I would probably be helpful. How are they? But I, I don't. You know, because agents come to, to come to those programs, and this is something I didn't know. But agents come to those programs to to scout. Yeah. Um. And I know, you know, it's easier, I think, infinitely easier to land an agent if you're, if you're at Iowa. Um, they, and I, you know, I have a lot of friends who, you know, who signed with people because they were at Iowa. But the, at the end, you know, finally, if, it's, if your work is not very good, you're not going to get anywhere, I don't think. So what do, you, what do you see for yourself going forward? Like, do you want to teach and then... Uh continue to write books do you have like i mean are you really uh like you know do you have like a very defined vision of output you know do you set yourself on a one book every two years no nothing like i mean that. I, I no i would like to write you know novels and i would like to do that more than i do anything else professionally um i i enjoy teaching i really liked teaching at iowa um and i you know but i teach i only teach once a week there. I teach a three-hour seminar um, every every Thursday evening, and I, I really I really like that. I like I like working with those with those students, um, but I don't think I want to. I don't know. You know, it's something I have to think about right now because I'm going to finish this this fellowship at Iowa ne- next in May, and then I'm I have, to, I have to work that out. You don't know, so you don't know where you're going to live or what you're going to be. No, doing. No, I really don't, and I and I'm I'm sort of exhausted by that. Because I, I feel like I've not known. For a long, long time, you know, I'm always somewhere else. Would you move back? So to, would know. you move back to Europe? I would absolutely. Um, I, you know, I've, 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 I'm back. I've been back to Paris uh, quite a bit, and um, you know, there, there's some uh, romantic elements that I that, that will determine where I live next year, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. And I and I part part of I just feel at this point I want to see where the book kind of leaves me well yeah i mean what about film stuff is like is there i mean is that something that interests you or have you had any interest in the book as a film property there's been a lot of interest um you know a lot of a lot of talk um i've had i've had some some meetings and and a lot of discussions um but right now you know nothing nothing permanent um had some discussions about the possibility of writing the adaptation but you know i worked in that business long enough to know that um, until somebody makes me an offer, I, I, I try my best not to get too excited about it. But you would do—you would be willing to write the adaptation. You wouldn't want that to go to somebody else. 
Um, I mean, I think it would depend on on who who is involved in the project, and it, and I think if I could, um, if 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 somebody said to me, you know, it gave me their version of of the film, and it sounded like something I wanted to write, and it was in line with the novel, I I would love to do it. But if somebody said, you know, they they wanted to make the ending. Um, you know, where everyone's living happily in the in the woods together. I don't. I don't think I could do that. Yeah. You know, I was just. I I, I couldn't be involved in, in that. I don't think. Ask for director approval. <laughs> you can get that. I don't think. I, I don't think I have. I don't think I have any. Um, I don't think I have a whole lot of power in that. In that. Don't under, right don't now. underestimate yourself. You're you're a rising <laughs> star. You are a Truman Capote fellow. That's right. That's right. For God's yeah, I, I'm not sure that means anything to anyone. But. <laughs> it means something to me. It sounds fancy <laughs> to me. Um, well, listen, yeah. it's been great talking with you. And, uh, you, you know, I, how much more do you have on your tour? You have some, some cities to, to hit? Uh, yeah, I'm headed, I'm headed to Vancouver um, tomorrow morning uh, for the Vancouver International Writers Festival. Uh-huh. I'll be up there for, for four nights, I think. And then going back to Iowa, um, and then I think, and then I'll, I'm going back out to L.A. and, and San Francisco in November, and, uh, and then some what? things in, for, in for, for, for tour or for just, like, for travel or what? Uh, both. I, I'm not, right now, I, you know, whether or not there will, there will be events, we're not sure, um, but I'm, I'm just going out there to, to visit family, and so... Check stuff out. Well, we'll have yeah. to, maybe we can get a drink when you're in Los Angeles Absolutely, or absolutely. All right, man. Well, have fun on uh, on the rest of your tour, and thanks. let me know if anything good happens. I will. I will. I will. And, and thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, everybody. That's the show. That's Alexander Maxik and I in conversation, talking to one another back and forth for about an hour. Thank you for listening. If you want to check out Alexander on the web, go to alexandermaxik.com. That's M-A-K-S-I-K, Alexander, M-A-K-S-I-K dot com. And uh, the book is You Deserve Nothing. You can also follow Xander on Twitter at Alexander Maxic. So one last thought, you know, I forgot to mention when I was uh, talking about my screenplay, Man of Letters, earlier at the top of the show, you know, that I had this whole thing figured out. It's one of those things where I even conceived the soundtrack. I had the whole movie playing in my head. And I thought that there would be Muzak versions of really uh, schmaltzy pop ballads. So I want to, you know, I'll do a bit. Like I have this whole vision of the opening sequence of the film. And it's I've gone through it in my head a million times. I know exactly how it's going to look. What you're going to see is a beach at golden hour. And you're going to see a guy who's sort of out of shape. This is Russell, very heavily bearded with kind of wild, like Albert Einstein hair. And you're just going to see this silhouette on like a golden California beach, and you're going to see a guy practicing karate, practicing martial arts on this beach, just a silhouette, and you're going to hear a voiceover. And in the background, you're going to hear that Celine Dion song, All By Myself, but it's just going to be Muzak. And you're going to see this guy do karate on the beach, a silhouette, as the music plays, and then there's going to be this voiceover. And when the voiceover ends, the guy's going to kind of kick his way off screen, and the title of the film Man of Letters, the Russell Bielan story, is going to appear against a gorgeous sky and fireworks are going to explode. So why don't I go ahead and uh, try to do this real quick. Here's the music. Here's the voiceover. Please note that the 
that Russell's supposed to have a patrician accent. I can't do it. He's supposed to sort of sound like Gore Vidal, like like half like like Madonna, half American, half British somehow. Okay, so here's the voiceover. Here's the music. Imagine the karate practice on the beach, the silhouette, and then at the end, the fireworks. My name is Russell Beeland. Perhaps you've heard of me before. If you're a member of the MySpace community, then you've probably been aware of my work for some time now. I was born in the hospital in 1967. I am a poet and a novelist and a writer of nonfiction. And though I don't like to boast, many people have told me that I am a man of unusual depth and sensitivity. This is a story about success and failure and love and chance and fate. A story about a few tortured souls and how they rose from the dead in the long dark shadows of a place called Anaheim. Most of all, it is the story of a boy who, at the age of 41, finally became a man. And so there's the music, you know, the music comes in and the fireworks, you see how it goes. Okay, I'll stop there. I know I went probably, uh, you know, several steps too far on that one. But thanks for listening. Back again soon. More writers, more talking, more other people for you, etc.